Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. I'm going to meet you men on your own terms. Cater to your craving for efficiency. Learn to talk sports, tell jokes, smoke, drink, and yes, if I have to, I'll even kiss you back. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Thoroughly Modern Millie. Starring Julie Andrews. Oh, I beg your pardon, you're Millie. Yes, Mrs. Miz, it's the new me. Toss your cares and curls away. Carol Channing. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with being a working girl. I was a working girl myself in the chorus, but I wasn't a boo. Mary Tyler Moore. The world of the stage just doesn't seem to want me. Because they don't know the real you. Cut your hair. Let them see how truly abandoned you are. John Gavin. That's swell. Just swell. And James Fox. I was just passing the hotel, going nowhere, killing time when I heard your snappy music. You mean you don't know anyone here? Sure, you. Dance? Directed by George Roy Hill. I didn't ask him to call. I don't want him to call. I never want to see Jimmy Smith again. Go. Forget the boys. Get yourself a canary, Dilmot. But the fact is everything today is thoroughly modern. Check your personality. Everything today makes yesterday slow. Better face reality. It's not insanity, says Vanity Fair. In fact, it's stylish to raise your skirts and bob your hair. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Bolt the door, take off your things, let's have a sample. It's Gally in Glasgow. And it's the podcast resident flat-chested flapper. It's Devlin in London. It's Jewish. It's Patrick in London. Raspberries! It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> welcome back, gang. Welcome back, listeners. <laughs> How are we all doing after our venture in the jungle? Are we all good? Uh, very well. Been brought right back to earth this episode <laughs> this is a quite far cry from uh from predator isn't it this is yeah this is what you call breakneck well it depends because there is a bookmark at the end of our last episode where i feel like i was tempting fate if anyone has listened to it uh, mm-hmm. where i put predator the musical at the end and uh, <laughs> and lo and behold here we are patrick i have a confession this is not my review but this is this is the state of my mind over the last week. Remember the scene in Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum is uh, taunting Richard Hammond in the in the vehicle, and he's like, uh, "Richard Hammond, <laughs> Richard Hammond, the John hamster. Hammond, <laughs> the hamster, <laughs> John Hammond, John Hammond, Sco- Scottish John Hammond, or Scottish John no, Hammond." Oh. By the way, might be in line for the the Ham Neal Award in that movie when we get to it. But anyway, uh, when he's taunting him, and he's like, "Are there any dinosaurs?" on this dinosaur tour. (laughs) I was thinking to myself, is Patrick pointing and prodding at me and going, there are going to be some musicals on this Rewind Movie podcast. (laughs) And I turn away and I say, I really do hate that man. (laughs) Patrick, um, we are doing a musical, a musical from the the late 60s, Thoroughly Modern Millie. So um, I guess... It will be for me to ask you, uh, why have you chosen Thoroughly Modern Millie? None of you have seen it, have you? Nope. No. Shake the head. I, I thought, I thought not, um, before. I've obviously watched it for today. I picked it, um, I, w- I wanted to do a Julie Andrews, um, on previous episodes when we did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I mentioned that 
there's certain films that I'd have watched when I was younger with my grandma and fond memories of watching them with her whenever she'd babysit. There was kind of a rotation of certain films and three of them were Julie Andrews films, um, Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. And I had, I'd wanted to first subject Matt to musical because he's gotten away with it. He, he wasn't on the previous two episodes and that's, that's kind of why. And I thought it was quite a good time to explore as well on the musical in the late sixties. Um, well, just to give a bit of context, it's like that's when film musicals were kind of dying out really late sixties and early seventies. So it's kind of an interesting time to, to have a look at as well. Um, what, what with Dev, Dev's mentioned the Hayes Code before. With that coming in, it freed up people to make whatever they wanted in the 70s, really. So the musical, which had dominated cinema for about 30 years before then, I, I think just lost it. People lost interest in. In the 60s, like five, uh, four out of 10 best pictures were musicals. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have the list of what they were? Uh, My Fair Lady, uh, Mary Poppins. My Side Story? West Side Story, 61, and I can't remember the other one, Dev, sorry. Okay, oh, no worries, man, that's, um, just, uh, that's interesting. But interestingly, like, My Fair Lady beat Mary Poppins. I just thought that was an interesting, like, thing though, Dev, but four out of ten mm. for that decade is quite huge. I think it's really lovely that you had your grandma to introduce you to certain films as well. Like, my grandparents weren't really film fans, and my mum has only really watched a handful of films from beginning to end in her whole life. So it was, it was only my dad who recommended a few. So I was trying to kind of tap in that way. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I think Westworld, Day of the Triffids and oh, nice. the 39 Steps were the oh, wow. only three films, um, uh, that he ever kind of pushed and said, yeah, you've got to, you've got to watch these. Um, that's quite, yeah. a, that's quite a good list. Yeah. Not bad. It's funny enough, uh, Christmas just gone. I took it up to my mum and dad to watch it with grandma, uh, just to kind of revisit that. And there's something quite interesting in remembering watching a film with someone who now cannot remember the film, uh, right. because my grandma's quite ill now. And it was really, I, I don't know how to say it, like it was really quite emotional watching her enjoying the film as though it was the first time she'd ever seen it and me remembering that she introduced it to me and that was a weird experience uh actually quite recently and that's an experience i think we'd all like wouldn't it for all of our favorite movies i'd love to go back and watch some of the films that i hold dear and close to my heart now as if i'd never seen them again to get that i think matt described it last week as chasing the dragon yeah, yeah so um Okay, yeah. well, that's, that's great that she, she got that experience yeah. over, over she, Christmas. She, she kept exclaiming through it, you know, like, oh dear, oh dear, when the madcap <laughs> things just yeah, kept yeah. escalating, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when they're, um, when she, they fall out of the, the building and hanging on the flagpole. Yeah. That was, uh, oh, goodness gracious, you know, that was kind of excla- exclamations from a, that were very in keeping of the time rather than fucking hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, uh, I think your grandma sounds, uh, a lot like, uh, my, my granny, uh, Patrick, cause, uh, we used, she used to make me watch, make me, and then I would choose to watch it. Double, double box VHS, 10 commandments, five hey, hours long. Right. That's one way of babysitting. Sit and watch this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, cause the runtime on this bad boy, I mean, you've watched it twice this week. 
I don't know where you got five hours and twenty in your in your week. I certainly didn't have it. <laughs> so I only I will say I only watched it the once. Ten minutes of that is intermission and overture. I was very delighted uh, with that. Yes, but it was um, <laughs> it was yeah it was a long. Um, I had to do it through several sittings. So um, yeah, confession again. I, I didn't get through all of it in in one one helping. D- Devlin, did you did you break it up as well? Uh, two days. Yeah, I did it over two days. I um. Pretty much split in half, which, uh, I felt once I realized that there was, I, I was just shy of the intermission when I took a break <laughs> on it. Um, now this is to say that honestly, now regardless of what I thought of the rest of the film, and I will try and be kind, <laughs> um, I do think the intermission, right, underrated, cause, uh, uh, on New Year's Day, I went to see Licorice Pizza, which was fantastic, but by the end of it, absolutely busting. <laughs> and i'd gone before like i was going on a long car journey yeah, so, were we dr- drinking or uh no i had like a, a a small a small glass of ginger ale because i was a little longer Devlin, you know but, ginger ale goes straight through you come on <laughs> i went the other way i i like the overture but okay, i didn't yeah, like yeah. that the I, I didn't mind this particular film being broken up because i you know i wanted to split it over two nights because it's quite long but it, it it breaks it would break up any you know, uh, average running time. Yeah. I think, I think the last like, film I, that I saw that attempted it in modern cinema was Hateful Eight. Right. Yeah. The, he did a roadshow version, didn't he? Mm, and uh, yeah. toured around. What, what used to be the cutoff? Because I remember, ex- I remember so vividly Titanic having a very long intermission. It wasn't really? Just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I don't remember that. Yeah. I didn't did know. You know okay. So, uh, well, at my local, what was ABC cinema, which is now probably like uh, a pole dancing club. Um, <laughs> this is Stoke on Tram, <laughs> by Griggs. the way. You know what? That was is this true. official or were they just trying to sell ice creams? <laughs> no, yeah. No, it was exactly that. It was sell ice creams, go for a piss. Um, obviously pick yourself up from the emotional, uh, weight of hitting the iceberg. Not a James Cameron approved intermission. No, this was an intermission for ABC cinemas at the time to <laughs> wow. sell, like you say, ice creams and M&Ms and, and obviously mm-hmm. it didn't work because now it would be sausage rolls and, and vegan pasties. But yeah, it, it's one of those things where <laughs> slammed. <laughs> I do miss it. I do, I do miss me an intermission and actually even for like a, a two hour 15, just a nice. Mm-hmm. Five minute. Well, I'm also I'm off uh, after this. I'm off to uh, to go see Drive My Car, the uh, the Japanese can winning movie. Three hours. Don't drink any ginger ale, Patrick. For those that have not seen Thoroughly Modern Millie, could you please give us a plot summary? In 1922, flapper Millie is tossing away her cares and curls, her full frontage, ruining her new beads. She's determined to be a modern girl and sets out to find work and a husband. But what Millie doesn't know is that innocent girls are being sold into white slavery nearby. Millie befriends the sweet Miss Dorothy Brown, who is checking in to the Priscilla Hotel with its tap-dance-driven elevator ran by Mrs. Mears, who has two Chinese henchmen doing the squeaky laundry rounds. A front for Mrs. Mears kidnapping her single young women. It's sad to be all alone in the world, after all. At a friendship dance, Millie meets flighty butterfly boy, paperclip salesman, Jimmy Smith, and they dance the tapioca before driving on the wrong side of the road and parking up at Makeout Point. Millie assures Jimmy she's going to marry her future boss, however, and subsequently meets babyface Trevor Graydon, the next day becoming his Johnny-on-the-spot stenographer. Amid Mrs. Mears' attempts to drug and kidnap Miss Dorothy, Millie sings at a Jewish wedding and Jimmy flies them to visit jazz baby Muzzy at her mansion for a party. 
Raspberry. Millie is growing fonder of Jimmy, but sees him beckoning Miss Dorothy late at night and assumes the worst. Things aren't looking good with her boss either. His eyes are bestowed on Miss Dorothy. Sweet mystery of life, at last he's found thee. Meanwhile, Jimmy is intent on seeing Millie again, despite being rebuffed by Mrs. Flannery. But he doesn't hang about climbing the side of the building to see her. Miss Dorothy apparently stands up Trevor, but that's not like her at all. Something's not right. She's been kidnapped by Mrs. Mears and her two henchmen. Jimmy dresses as Mary James, disguising himself as a single lonely woman in order to catch Mrs. Mears in the act and is subsequently drugged and taken to Chinatown Fireworks Factory and locked up with all the other missing girls. Mrs. Mears tranquilized starts Trevor and Millie makes chase, smokes a cigarette to remain incognito and throws it into an open factory window, setting off the fireworks. During the chaos, Millie frees the other girls and saves Jimmy along with Miss Dorothy and heads to Muzzy's. Mrs. Mears and her henchmen follow but are roundly trounced. Oh, pook. Millie discovers that Jimmy is actually loaded. Muzzy is his stepmother, and Miss Dorothy is his sister. Millie marries Jimmy. Miss Dorothy marries Trevor. Muzzy marries an instructor. Shoe show, shoe show. Very good, Patrick. Very good. And uh, thanks for reminding me as well of the uh, the Ed- Eddie Izzard impression that gets done um, about 20 minutes just before the end of the movie. <laughs> while, we're, while we're on impressions, uh, do you not think um, Julie Andrews was a bit Michael Crawford in Some Mothers Do Have Him? Yeah. You can't talk about Julie Andrews this way. Here's, here's what I kept thinking. The first, and we'll get into the, the Hollywood stuff, but while she got me, got me lit, um, <laughs> it was, um, it reminded me of, uh, Ricky Gervais in Extras when he's playing the genie and he's like, oh, just, yeah, the opening, <laughs> the opening 20 minutes, Julie Andrews keeps mugging at the camera, looking at it. And I was just thinking to myself, what is going on? There's a bit where Jimmy's been doped by the ink in the letter that he's writing and she sort of holds a finger to her mouth and it mm. is exactly that. It's it's very Frank Spencer. I thought she was going to get the roller skates out. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can we can go into more depth on Julie Andrews, but I'm going to go on to that point, Patrick, that you said about the, the musicals and um, one of the things I was trying to kind of hone in on is exactly what kind of genre of musical this was and I ended up landing on screwball comedy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. And then I started to dig into screwball comedy as a genre, which I, I've known from like modern screwball comedies. Are you talking like, uh, like the bringing up baby kind of? Yeah. Era like what are they lampooning? What are they Spencer satirizing? Tracy. What are they bringing back up? And, um, and, and I didn't realize that screwball derived from baseball. It's a, it's a pitch, isn't it? And then, uh, and then I found a scholar, Ed Sitkoff, the author of screwball colon hollywood's madcap romantic comedies and he pitches see what i did there that love can only be enhanced by aggravation it's all the constant misunderstandings isn't it yes the misunderstandings and the cross purposes <laughs> yeah you have to uh <laughs> you have to have your meat cute and then you have to put um barriers in the way of the of the the main couple from getting together um there was also a a because of what with it being set in the twenties, there was a lot of um silent comedy bits as well. The, mm. um, the Harold Lloyd referencing. The Harold Lloyd referencing. Very on the, the nose of the pianos. Patrick's grandma's well. favorite. Uh, the, the title cards, you know, the, the yeah. look into camera and then the, the title cards. Um well, the artist did it and won an Oscar. Well, yeah. That's true. Yeah. They had a dog though. 
Yeah, this is true. It's not, um, it, it, it's kind of born from a play called The Boyfriend, which Julie Andrews was in when she was younger. Um, Gally, you said offline, you don't, you're not really familiar with Julie Andrews, uh, like her life. I feel a little bit like, um, I've, I've missed a trick really because she is a British constitution, isn't she? I mean, mm. she's up there with Sir David Attenborough as far as, and I got him, at least I got him right as opposed to Richard Hammond. John Hammond, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm only kidding. I, I, <laughs> I, did on, I, I did that on purpose. Richard Attenborough, Richard Hammond. Oh, no. Um, but yeah, she's a British institution and, mm. um, and I've seen, I, I've seen the sound of music and I've seen the endless clips shows that reference julie andrews in the sound of music how important that was i didn't even realize she was from surrey yeah yeah i figured that patrick you would know a little bit more because i, I genuinely have, have so little knowledge about her that it feels almost shameful that uh that i could even talk about her performance leave her alone um <laughs> Yeah, she she was this major thing, and um, she went on the stage with Richard Burton for a bit, and something called Camelot, and that's where Walt Disney saw her and said, "That's Mary Poppins," because he was in development at the time. <laughs> he was looking for leprechauns mm. at the time and found Mary Poppins. <laughs> 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 leprechauns were—he just finished with the leprechauns. He just shipped them back to the Emerald Isle, and um, it was on to Mary Poppins at this time. Uh, <laughs> she was actually in My Fair Lady, one of my favourite. This is going to tell you a lot about who Julie Andrews was as a person and this leading into Thoroughly Modern Millie because she was in My Fair Lady on the stage. Um, I can't remember the actor who played alongside her, but, um, Jack Warner cast Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady instead of her. And when, uh, Andrews accepted a, uh, her Oscar, there was also a Golden Globe, one of the awards for Best Actress for Sound of Music. She like said, "Hey Jack Warner, look at me now. You know, like you missed out on mm. this." She's quite outspoken, and she's she's quite very cheeky, like forthright woman, Julie Andrews. And that's why she went for Thoroughly Modern Millie. And I, I've kind of a little theory in the opening scene because she just worked with um, after Santa, Mary Poppins. No, she won the Mary Poppins Sound of Music. Um, you know, she did a few little edgier things, um, uh, Hawaii, and she worked with, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who just regarded her as eye candy, uh, on the screen. Apparently didn't work with her very well, didn't really direct her, so she struggled. And, you know, to go back to the musical, she, she wandered away from the musicals, did that, didn't have a really good experience, went back to the musical Thoroughly Modern Midi, because she was really attracted to the character. Because it was, you know, Plucky the Flapper, uh, it was more in keeping with what, what, who she was. And I feel like that opening sequence when she's walking through New York and she sees, and, and they, here it is, Gally, to tell you what the film is, madcap beauty spot. It's a madcap comedy. She, she sees that, she changes her appearance, she cuts off the hair, she changes her clothes. And I think that's the statement where she was in Hollywood at the time. It's like, you're not going to, uh, you know, subject me to just one, thing or and or, or and, and i guess you, you 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 pointed it out um you know she's a major star at this point which you know might go might go some way to explain why that opening sequence and again this is not meant to be like a kind of underhand uh dig but it really does labor the points i mean uh i was sort of like yeah i get it um but i, I didn't know if we were going to do it with every single piece of clothing i was like oh god <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> 
You don't like seeing her boobs pop out and disrupt the that, bits. I, I found that to be almost Austin Powers-esque in its madness. Um, well, it, was it is. Of, it's of the time. like, And it's that kind of screwball comedy that you're saying. I guess, I guess what my issue was, and the film started to kind of confirm this to me, is that I, I wrote down after I watched it, those that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And what I meant was that this felt like a kind of like 60s, poking fun at how the 20s attitude was while still falling into all the trappings of the things that it's trying to lampoon i guess that's that that and, and that might be unfair and i'm really looking forward to kind of hearing your side of it because that's likely not going to be where you landed but i i really start to bump up against the movie after about 15 honestly about 15 minutes just because i didn't see the the satire, I guess. Try, try and think of it as a theatre piece, as a, you know, like a Broadway musical. Because that's, that's what it is, really. He doesn't like theatre either. <laughs> I have treaded the board. Yeah. That's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I think the satire is kind of, like you said, it's on the nose and it's, you know, the sixties were, um, I don't know, for these kind of universal films. Um, like the producer, um, Ross Hunter, I don't know whether you noticed, but at the beginning it was like a title card that was Ross Hunter, uh, a Ross Hunter film rather than a George Roy Hill film. And he was renowned for these kind of films that were more, um, comedy about love and about the quite garish films at the times. And he, it was his, his kind of baby. He wanted to do boyfriend, couldn't get the rights, couldn't afford it or something. So he wrote his own. And wrote his own that then became a musical in this century, actually. The same year, Mike Nichols, The Graduate, came out. And I think this is the last Julie Andrews box office hit. Yeah. She she had a few other bits and bobs. um, But she wouldn't really have, like, critical acclaim as an actress till uh, Victor and Victoria in the 80s. Well, um, I'll give it the Princess Diary. She's great in that as well. That's 90s though, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's later. And that's after she lost her voice, um, which was kind of quite tragically taken away from her, really, through a botched surgery. Mm. 97, which is real, real right. shame because she became a kind of cabaret type person, TV entertainment and all these musical shows. And she's got an extraordinary voice. I think that's where you get the Jewish... Um, random um billy 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 bop 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 that's thing because it's just showcasing her voice because she had this uh i don't know some sort of well, freak of she? nature that you had this range yeah but i guess like me saying mike nichols the graduate came out the year before sergio leone's Mm-hmm. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Things are changing, and, right? It's Bonnie and Clyde, which, which, if you read, um, like yeah. Peter Biskin's Easy Riders Raging Balls, he said that was essentially like year zero for the new Hollywood, which came out. It's like you can show anti-heroes, you know, like the Hays Code restricted people to being, it, it, you had to have black and white morals and anyone who behaved badly had to be punished by the world of the film. And at this point, that was that was all slipping away, and they say they were really because you know Godard and Truffaut were, were on the go by this point. Their influence was was finally bleeding back into America, and I mean, I guess what's interesting is the idea that the new Hollywood kind of revolution that came in um, killed this stuff off so quickly. Mm. I think is interesting, and 
I guess what I find fascinating is that I'd never heard of, I, I'd heard the title of this film. I knew absolutely nothing about it. I didn't know it was a Julie Andrews film. I didn't know that it was this late. I didn't realize it was from 67. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. well, well, look where, look where the director went after this film. Yeah. He did, uh, Butch and Sundance, right? And the sting, which is great. That was the only thing hooking me in because I'd, I'd never even heard those three words together thoroughly modern. Right. <laughs> and, uh, George Roy Hill was the, my only real connection. I mean, I'm aware of Mary Poppins, but, um, that's, that's about yeah. it as far as Julie Andrews goes and, and spinning around on a mountain, you know. Yeah. And you look at like the musicals that came after this kind of end point here. The seventies, you've got Cabaret in Greece, eighties, mm. Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. 90s was dominated with Disney animation films. And then Moulin Rouge and Turn of the Century. And it's like, considering there was four best pictures in the 60s of musicals, man, it's... Yeah. Well, the other thing that happened, Patrick, as well, is, um, you know, pop stars, was, uh, musical pop stars were starting to... You know, oh yeah, the the Beatles making movies into, at this point into, as well, right? Into musicals, right? So yeah. it it moved away from like performative dance and song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as traditionally delivered, and into Elvis is actually doing a music video in a <laughs> yeah. film, but yeah. he's not he's not tap dancing; he's just singing yeah. in a in a musical as if it were a music video, and and that that all started to happen too. So it really was, you know, shifting sands, I guess. Because this is like um, a, it's not really a parody, it's kind of a parody of 1920s tropes, right? But it's it's also a film that conforms to the standard of the big showstopper musical entertainment. The whole family goes and watches it. I mean, it's a film about um, some dodgy Chinese stereotypes kidnapping white girls. So it's it's. I, I never thought a, we would be doing Taken Two. I'll be honest. This is a this is an interesting this thing. Is that, four. I, that that's a whole other discussion about like the sort of stuff that you could just put in like family entertainment mm. and yeah. just be fine and accepted and not really even thought about. But um, but also the, there, there's a big theme in it though. I think possibly the Julie Andrews driving force of it is the modern woman, right? And being a modern woman and you know the at the big like I said earlier in the beginning she changes herself to be this flapper and you know she's she wants to get married she wants to do it this way and successful and be a modern woman and there's there's that throughout the film it's kind of a theme um it, i think it goes by the wayside towards the end because it's just uh it, it does like the first half though and they have the chat in the elevator uh, and that's that's where the characters come from and and what they want to be but it just becomes a love story at the end in that madcap sense. I'm really glad you identified it because it was the bit where that was keeping me just going was I hope that they deliver because, you know, you messaged us offline about comparing it to, you know, my musical uh, knowledge has, has, has gone up 50%. Just to yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, so Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which uh, me and Devlin both, uh, I think I enjoyed a little bit more than Devlin. But I really, um, I really kind of appreciated the, uh, the, the female character. And forgive me, I've forgotten her name in it. Um, but, but she kind of holds. Isn't she called Millie in that? Too? Is she called Millie or begins? Oh, she is. Okay. Fantastic. Well, that, that's easy. I should have remembered that. Um, but that I really appreciated because she was kind of the glue that kept me in the film. And I was hoping the same would happen here. But unfortunately, I think Devlin said it, it starts to. It starts to fall into the the same trappings, and by the end, you know, spoilers, listeners, the man that's supposed to be the average Joe, being the the super billionaire guy, 
I was just like, oh, no, no. Well, in my synopsis, that's why I kind of put, you know, it, it just, at the end, Millie marries Jimmy, Miss <laughs> Jodie marries, you know. Well, like, she she marries Jimmy by saying, as soon as they fall into each other's arms, um, she didn't, like, I didn't know where the irony line was. I was lost. Yeah. I think I was lost because everything's so earnest in the film. So I, I, it threw all my, uh, all my radars out. So I wasn't sure what was going on by the end of it. I was just a bit exhausted. And, um, there was the moment where she falls into his arms and says, Oh, I don't want to be your equal. I want to be a woman, a fluffy, <laughs> silly thing that you can clutch. And then it's like, and then they get married and then it's done. It's like, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know if it's a parody of happy endings. I think so, but it's played so earnestly and so straight that I just don't know where we ended up. I think I think Hunter's more um, and just entertainment. Okay, just love so story the, this entertainment. The, to be quite honest, the, there could have been something in that because, especially when we're setting it in like 1967 of all years, which you know, uh, uh, as we are reminded by. Um, uh, what's his name? Kent Brockman, where he says we have to do the same stock 1967 montage and it's, uh, Vietnam and <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. And he says, what an awful, gaudy, pointless decade. But 1967 would be, you know, kind of yeah. year zero flower for power. flower power. And then you've got women's liberation coming through at the same time. And you've got the idea of people for, you know, for the first time in, in a long time trying to cast off the shackles of traditional gender roles. And I find it interesting that I, that's why I didn't know if the film was, using the 20s as a vehicle to examine the gender roles of the 60s, but nothing I could see in it kind of landed. Muzzy, too! Sure, you want to join me? And my sister? Sister? And my stepmother? Stepmother? Yes, even though she's not old enough to be. I've been blind. No, no, Diddums. Jimmy is just like his father. He doesn't look very much like a real multimillionaire to a girl, either. You're not in paper clips? Well, that's not far from the truth, Millie. The fortune was founded in steel. Oh, I don't understand. Well, that Judith Tremaine was chasing Jimmy quite a lot, and every fortune hunter in this hemisphere was after Dorothy, so I sent the children out into the real world with high hopes that they would come back with truly, truly sweet partners like you and Trevor Graydon, and they did. Oh, your father would be so proud of you. Jimmy, off with the mask. I'm James Van Hosmer, first vice president of Van Hosmer Worldwide Enterprises. Well, Julie Andrews has become kind of... uh a gay icon as well uh, throughout her career. And I think there's, I don't know, she's she's kind of androgynous herself and it lends well to her dressing up in Victor and Victoria. But you get Jimmy dressing up as Mary James in here as well and there's a little bit of cross-dressing there. And I think um, with the gender roles in it, I think they are explored a little bit, Dev. Um, I think they are, again, of interest to Julie Andrews and from a performative point of view, because uh, she went on in her career and she became quite an advocate and um, important in that sense in, in portraying that. It just, the, the first half of the film here has, has that message that you're talking about. In the 60s, I think, the liberation of women and, and free-thinking free modern woman, look at the title. The second half, um, I think, just just becomes a, a film that's getting to an end really. like a zany a zany farce yeah and you've broken it up into into halves i had it in quarters because okay. um 
there are yeah. there are real shifts in this and uh but not in a in a predator good way um I, <laughs> I i was honestly i was really struggling because i kept thinking i was in one type of movie and then it would it almost felt like there was probably five hours worth of stuff and that they were just kind of chopping in between. You know, you mm. mentioned the randomness of the um, the Jewish party, which showcases Julie Andrews's talent, fantastic, but mm-hmm. serves nothing to the story. And you said it like you prefer Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I think you prefer the dance sequences. You know, the Barnhouse dance we spoke about, which for me is is an incredible sequence. It's choreographer Michael Kidd who was really renowned and amazing at the time. I don't think anything in this holds a candle choreography wise to seven brothers for seven brothers not at all and and actually i joked again in my notes i put oh how cinematic let's box in a dance on a lift like i just thought this yeah maybe on stage but for a film that whole tap dancing up and down on a lift i was just like this is going on forever and i can't even it happens eight i can't times even as well. see it's i can't even often. see the feet so I'm just like, so what am I watching? I'm just <laughs> mm. watching gyration. I, I haven't seen uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, but just from the podcast that you did, I can, I think I can say that the songs are stronger in that movie than in this one. And they, they seem to be more memorable, even, even for me, who's, who's only listened to a podcast on it. Well, interestingly, in Thoroughly Modern Millie, um, director, uh, Hill, he was thrown out of the, it was fired during the editing process. And he Classic. Wanted, we love that. Oh, that's 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 a rewind yeah. staple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Reynolds yeah, territory. Yeah. <laughs> <But> it, <clears throat> did Costner take over? <laughs> <laughs> he he wanted a shorter, more tighter film. Yeah, and you can see why. Like you, you watch this, you can immediately write Jewish wedding out, trim down this, cut. You know, just make everything mm. smoother and tighter. Matt, I think there are some sequences that go on a little bit too long here. And I'm, it, mm. again, it's this universal producer, Hunter, who said, no, he wanted it to be a roadshow type film. And he had eyes on it going to Broadway as well, which didn't happen for the 30 odd years. But that's interesting, right? Because I think, I think the director knew and mm. he, he's, he's addressing everything that we're addressing now. And he wasn't allowed to. I'd love to see a director's cut of this. Well, you've, you've got to just give Hill his dues because he goes on and makes two of the most important, well, you know, maybe not The Sting, but Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, one of those kind of American classics. And The Sting is great if no one's ever seen that either. Well, that, that bought me a lot of time at, at the beginning, the fact that it was George Roy Hill and the, uh, one thing I noticed was the design as well, uh, because of the beginning of Butch Cassidy, the sepia sequence is my favorite thing he's ever done, like the way Redford as Sundance is introduced. And um, just what he does there photographically and the way he introduces characters, this film was quite strong in terms of, of the visuals and how characters were introduced and also how colours were used, uh, linking costume colours and costumes to, to colours in the, uh, the production design. And that bought me a lot of time, but I, I, I can get to some more critical things later. But that uh, up until Raspberry's... Uh, uh, that, that jazz baby part that, that was jazz baby was where I, uh, you went off the wagon. That, that was a, yeah, yeah. I I went off earlier because I expected, you know, once we'd done the lift sequence where I was like, this is really quite annoying because I can't actually even see the dancing. Uh, I thought, okay, the tapioca sequence. I I also didn't know that the the big kind of in. And I was just like, this is so flat. 
And I think it's because it's shot in a ballroom. And I compared it to Seven Brides, where it was like the barn dancing, intricate, moving around. The choreography was really, really clean. Also, they're all wearing different colors, so I can follow who's who. That tapioca sequence, I was, I felt like I was watching a line dance in my local youth club. It was, <laughs> it was very, very flat to me. Patrick. It was a friendship really dance. Sorry. Oh, and it went on for so long. Funnily enough, that's my favourite dance and number in this film, the tapioca one. Uh, I see your point. Um, my, my brother and I, we used to love the way they'd lean back and like slap because it just looked so strange. <laughs> yeah. uh, Listeners, uh, Patrick is uh, clicking his fingers <laughs> or slapping my eye, and it's just just the way they lean back and just tapping their feet always looked so such a funny motion to me. Um, we used to take the piss out of that. Do you not think that it lacks the, the kind of iconic photography of something like singing in the rain? It does, it or, does, but uh, they, and, again, you're talking about something that I think is far superior choreography wise. There's, you, you use, it's better shots. And that's not, I actually find there's a few shots and camera movements in this film that are really good. And under my Matt subsection in my notebook to ask him about was, what they use the camera for establishing or tracking through a crowd and following a character. There's a tracking shot through the corridor in the Priscilla Hotel. And I think he uses the camera quite well to follow characters in here. I just don't think the dances are... It could be flat galley and poorly choreographed that he doesn't really have anything to showcase mm. or doesn't know how to. I'll tell you the comparison mm. to make for, for viewers who have not seen this or not been into musicals it'd be like giving an indie director an art house indie director an action movie they and they and they, their strong point being not shooting action mm-hmm. like it, it just it just to me it felt like hill is way more interested in the dramatic sequences and is just far less interested in the big performance showstoppers. Yeah. One of my early musical references was the Busby Berkeley stuff that Spielberg did in Temple of Doom and like the way that that's covered and the excitement of that. And I was hoping for more of, of that, uh, because a lot of directors like Paul Thomas Anderson talked about singing in the rain a lot. And that's what initially got me to go back and look at that and, um, appreciate the, the photography and the choreography. And like the beauty of all of that. So I, I was expecting a bit more from, from the songs and the choreography and the photography. Matt, of wouldn't it. you think that as well when your genre is under threat that you would go balls to the wall? Like that was what mm. I, I was surprised mm. by. I, I didn't know whether they were playing it safe, but I would have thought, no, well, you got to do something that's, that's really going to make sure that people remember that this stuff sells, especially when you're under threat from all these art house young directors that, you know, the graduate is such a, an innovative, movie no matter what you think about uh some of the stuff that hasn't aged well you can watch it and be like jesus they're doing stuff here that i've seen in film modern films now and they're doing it better even back then um whereas in this it it feels bloated and self-indulgent but without doing anything innovative having only seen now patrick about five musicals i just felt like you know if you've got julie andrews and she's she's a star who's got a bit of weight behind it and you've got a director who's clearly going to be um go on to do better things maybe you're right maybe this hunter guy um has kind of almost sabotaged his movie from the beginning i think i think there is a bit of that it's funny because george Roy hill he when he did this he was a bit fed up with hollywood so i think that's telling there as well and he went back to broadway <laughs> but he flopped twice then that's what brought him back to butch cassidy which is a nice twist of fate there <laughs> 
Um, well, I wondered how much his, his heart was in it. Did, did you hear anything about how pleased he was with the final product? I couldn't product, find anything or? on that, no. Uh, Julie Andrews liked working with him. So there's, there's that. But like going on to mm. your point, Matt, when the, when we meet Carol Channing, when we're at Muzzy's and she has the jazz baby number, she's just stood still mm. to start the song and awkward little movements. And it's some, that, uh, when I was watching it, the first time this week that felt flat to me and i remember kind of enjoying her voice when i was younger and how mental she was uh but just i was really taken by how flat i found the opening of jazz baby just i like her running through and doing movements and there's a nice sort of tracking shot that brings her to the forefront of the camera which is cool but um I felt disappointed watching that sequence this week. And that was betraying my memory of, of that, that sequence when I was younger, mm. you know, her dancing on the xylophone. I really liked. I'll give you a positive though, Patrick. I'll give you a positive ear to ear grin when she flies into that stage on a, on a zip wire. <laughs> I'll give you that. I, I, that, that I loved. I wanted more of that. Just, just the idea of this old woman being flung into it. Well, the, the Benini brothers is quite, quite well done that, but that is, like a theatre show anyway. And you, that's a really well rehearsed thing. Uh, I quite like a little bit of charm that you can see the, the wires on. Very, very um, lit wires. Yeah. But she's doing that. She's doing all of that. You, you, um, they talk about the, co- there's a little YouTube documentary on the, the costume design of the film. And there's a little discussion about her costumes and having to look both glamorous as Muzzy is and then practical to be able to do all those like little um, turns and jumps and everything. But I like the Benini Brothers section. That's cool. That whole but- sequence reminded me of the opening to Baron Munchausen a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I, so, uh, but I, but I appreciated it, even though I do remember in the episode, I did say that that went on for too long as well, but clearly mm. I don't like stages. Uh, there's, there's a, because it's so madcap, I think the the issue, like they said, that George Roy Hill wanted to tighten this one up. I think you can't maintain zaniness over <laughs> such a long stretch. I think, but it, especially but it gets zanier, especially without. Um, I think you have to match it. You have to match it with the form and the content. And I understand that they wanted to step back and allow the before, especially in the big numbers. I think it seemed with Carol Channing, especially they wanted to just step back and show you, like you said, oh, this is really her doing this, or so take the take the cuts out of it allow it to play out to show that she's, you know, and the, the jazz baby song was not my cup of tea, but I did appreciate her absolute gusto in belting it out. And mm. you're right. Like when she walks around and she starts doing all the instruments, it just reminded me of the bit in the jerk, you know, when, um, yeah. that's duetting with the ukulele and then, uh, um, the redhead pulls out the trumpet and she starts playing. Maybe the musical stuff aside, like, the, the comedy aspect of any of this work and have you laughing the, the kind of you mentioned the silent film references uh the fourth mm-hmm. wall breaking stuff where she looks to camera and you know i think one thing i wrote uh like a squirrel storing the nuts of life you know and saying boop boopy doop and all that <laughs> i it's just not i, I it, it just doesn't appeal <laughs> to me really I, I just didn't i didn't get the humor of it and that was a, a real a real really hard thing to get past but that's why we have sex trafficking. That's why we have sex trafficking. <laughs> that's the most unexpected turn in the podcast and in the film. Yeah. So what's, what's fertile ground for humor? 
is he is trafficking people yeah yeah the phrase white slavery will never not freak me out i don't know it's just <laughs> i just didn't I, it screams from a headline within the first couple of minutes of the mm, film yeah. and i think that that's a really strange setup and, and we, we set up who it is who's the perpetrator straight away yeah well the opening the opening felt like mm. it could have been in, in colombo and then we're having jovial <laughs> dances. I was like, well, this could be the opening of a Columbo episode with the secrecy and the gloves and yeah, the, yeah. all what's happening. Talking about cinematography. Did you clock the cinematographer? It's returning rewind legend, Russell Metty. Is he the guy that photographed his own shadow? He's on the guy Columbo who shot, uh, John Huston's <laughs> The Misfits. Uh, but then, right, late, yeah. but then later went on to be a, a regular on Columbo who, yes, photographs his own shadow and the top of the flats of the stages frequently. <laughs> I feel like uh, for a while, Colombo is the mm. universal boneyard. Like, oh God, who have we got on contract? <laughs> Honestly, Patrick, after the overture, which I kind of obviously knew that I was in the right movie, <laughs> but that that first minute, I was like, am I watching the right film? Like, this doesn't feel like a jovial joust of yeah. a fun wit. Um, it gave me some quite high hopes because I thought perhaps that, again, with when you're talking about, you know, the era, it's an unusual time to have the big, big, you know... Show stopping musical, and I thought, oh, are they going to like? Sub-? We mentioned um, Cabaret before, which is a couple of years after. And like when I finally got around to watching Cabaret, because I'd put it off for the longest time, I was like, oh, Cabaret's f- like fucked up. Cabaret's got some stuff to say. It's really quite quite twisted. That's and why I, I thought, think it did well in that time. Yeah, I said this is really interesting. So I thought perhaps that this would be a transitional musical, and especially with George Roy Hill, who was a an older filmmaker who kind of managed to find himself swept into the new Hollywood kind of, you know, an, an older state, an elder statesman in the movie brats. But it was, so when it materialized to be so, um, zany and, and it's, and it maintained that tone all the way throughout, I, I was a little surprised. I thought perhaps we were going to get something a little more subversive. Should we do it then, Patrick? I mean, should we talk about the... Should we talk about Oriental 1 and Oriental 2? That's what you're trying to tiptoe around. Well, no, no, I'm not tiptoeing around it. I'm going to go at it full full steam on my on my train. <laughs> it's nice to see Mr. Miyagi in another film, though. Oh, well, yeah, I guess so. The, the distinctly non-Chinese Pat Morita. <laughs> yeah, he's... Yeah. Well, Jack Su was born Japanese as well, I think. I, I found this to be incredibly odd, um, to the point where the only thing that I thought, oh, at least they're not doing it, but then they did it about two hours in. So I was like, at least they're not giving them funny accents. And then she starts doing a funny accent when she starts talking in, <laughs> in the native tongue. And I was like, oh, they did do that. That's not, it end. can't be native tongue. I think it's just noise. No, no, but no, I'm it's, not, you, yeah. know, you know what I mean? It's, and I was just like, this is, and, and the only thing that we can reference because it's the sixties. So what do we know about Chinese people? The soy. I was like, Oh, this is, this is not good. At least soy sauce is a propelled joke for later though. Like at, at least there is a connection to a joke later on rather that than true. that is true. That's that who said like, that's good. That, that's a rare setup and payoff in the film. Are they trying to say, Oh, well, you know, we traffic them and now they're trafficking us. Is that the joke? Are we supposed mm. to be like, Oh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't. I don't. I think, I think it's for laughs, unfortunately. I did read like a review that, that did question it, but at the same time, what a strange time for Hollywood cinema, because this is one of the first examples of like Chinese people in cinema at the time, uh, in a, in a, like an actual Hollywood film is what, this is what I read I, without having mm. examples. Apologies. When was Breakfast at Tiffany's? 
That was a little early. It was earlier than this. I think. And, and yeah, that, I mean, that's, mm. you know, the, the fairly shocking Mickey Rooney character. Yeah. I, I think it's just, it's, it's an of the time thing. What? When was, one, when was Sean Connery dressing up with, um, a couple of years before this as well, right? Years yeah. before as well. Yeah. I mean, so, so like, we're not going to, we're not going to go hard. This isn't thoroughly modern Millie's. You know, they're not the only sinners in this. And it's obviously as again, we're not going to come from, you know, 50 odd years later to be like, you were wrong. I guess my <laughs> biggest oddity was how they use it, like, and what they use it for. Mm. I'm like, if you're okay, not that I'm going to accept it because it's always going to be wrong, but you know, there were things in seven brides for seven brothers that were just deeply misogynistic and wrong and crazy. Mm. But they used it. But it was contextualized, the, right? It was contextualized, yeah. yeah. This just feels like a, a subplot that mm. I have no idea what it is doing in this movie at all. On uh, Letterboxd and some of the reviews on there, even the fans of the film were taken aback and confused by the racism in the plot and the anti, anti-Asian yeah. well, overtones. Well, in, in the musical so, uh, now on the stage, that I think they've... They've gone a long way to address that, and they've removed the um, Jewish wedding as well and rewritten it because the Jewish wedding, mm-hmm. we said earlier, it's, it's proper random. But I put the subtitles on for it, and at one point, the subtitles just read "random Yiddish noises." Oh, good grief! And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she's, they're not wholly just saying actual uh, translatable words. It's one thing, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach, I'm gonna reach so, so far, cause I think there's no, there's no point in me belaboring the point that I did find all, I, I did find all of the Chinese stuff, you know, just kind of like slightly jaw-droppingly racist. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna put that aside because there's no point belaboring it. What I will say is that the fact that the film was set in an emerging New York and showed that there was both a um a flourishing Jewish community and a flourishing Chinatown is interesting. Yeah, yeah. An acknowledgement of the idea that New York is not just that one street corner where they've got the 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 hotel and the big you know the high rise buildings. They did a decent enough job of establishing that New York could be a big city and to actually see, you know, a Chinatown. Now obviously once she gets to Chinatown and it's just prostitutes and people scowling at her. And a not, factor. not not so great. And an opium den. How about the the, the depiction of uh, Mrs. Means? So strange. Well. So, so strange. Um, it reminded me of Wild Things, you know, when we said that you, you wouldn't ask like the, the teenagers to do certain things because of their age, but you would ask someone over 18 to, to play this Just particular role. In I wonder if some of the things that, she, yeah, the things that, that Roy Hill or whoever was, was asking her to do if she'd actually been Chinese. I, I wonder if that they would have uh, seen the mistake the 20s, of what they were doing. They, also, they wouldn't have been able to have. Uh, uh, I wouldn't have thought a Chinese owner and manager of a hotel for young white women. It's just too racist a time to no, have maybe her. Maybe Chinatown for Chinese. Uh, oh yeah, but, but for for you know for the the plummy likes of you know Millie and Dorothy, I think probably there would be a real segregation. So what do you think to the character T at Muzzy's? Oh, again, it's very unusual. I just wondered where the fascination came from. Mm. I just wondered why there was so, so much, uh, chi- like, cod Chinese influence in the film. It's, do you think it was just a fascination that maybe like Ross and I just liked, liked the, the, the visuals of it? He wanted I the- just think it's like, if you're, we've already said about, 
the the direction feeling a bit flat and we've got to try and bring something new. I just think it's like that whole exoticism. Yeah. Where you just, well, they've not seen this before. So let's, let's give them it. But what do we know about, you know, it's, it's, I think it's bred from ignorance really. Like, well, we know, we know very, very little about this culture and these people, but what we do know about them is this. And then they've just made them like these cartoon villains. I mean, there was a bit right at the beginning. It made me really uncomfortable because as I said, I did not know that there was going to be a human trafficking subplot. But then when we see the, um, I think it's the Oriental 2, which even, even me just saying that just feels like in, in wholly wrong, looks at the camera and goes, she's for me. Well, that, that was the problem. That implication that they're also fiddling with the, uh, with the women in the opium den. Uh, and, and also that, that, uh, Mrs. Means was reduced to, uh, as you say, a cartoonish villain. It was sub, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. She looked like the kitty catcher from uh, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Any mail for me, Mrs. Mears? Too early for the mail. You know that, Millie. Oh. Hello. Uh, I'm Millie Dillmount. Hello. I'm Mary James. I'm new here. Yes. I hope we'll be friends. Oh, so do I. I don't know a soul in New York. I don't know a soul anywhere. Except at the orphanage. Oh. Sad to be all alone in the world. Twelfth floor, dear. Uh, I'll show you the way. On on the kind of mixing cultures in here, um, the score did actually win. The film was nominated for a few Oscars, but it won Best Score uh, from Bernstein. Like the music obviously goes into Chinese inflections, and you hear gongs and things, and then Jewish music as well. Did you like the score? I thought it was interesting the way that we mixed diegetic and non-diegetic uh, songs. I I thought that was an interesting thing that I don't think I'd seen before. You mean this idea that it could be, it's taking place in her mind? Um, there was, so the stuff that I liked the most out of the whole film was, um, anything to do with, uh, Graydon. I thought he yeah, felt like yeah. a character. He was like the, um, the dad from Ren and Stimpy, you know, that you just see your <laughs> stories, uh, his sock suspenders, but the guy with the pipe and, you know, um, the, the way he played it almost felt like a Phil Hartman type of character. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just this, this ridiculous blustery, like square jawed stereotype. So I thought that was quite fun. And I liked the, um, the sappy romantic theme that came in between, yes! uh, Dorothy and Graydon and the fact that, uh, it, it reprised every time they saw each other and you had the doughy eyes together. And, um, Oh, after he's been knocked out in the car and he as he's coming to, he's humming it to himself. Mm. So that, that's some of my favorite like stuff musically, Dev, uh, in this is when he first sees Mr. Uh, he's like, Oh, sweet mystery. I'm like, <laughs> like, I love that going on in his head. I think that's great. I, I think that the fact that I'd never heard of the movie is a reflection of how weak the songs are because I think I would have heard of something related to it just from just pop cultural stuff um i i also hate jazz uh, which didn't help at all on this one um someone said um wh- while it was really cool that the singing was done uh in in the characters heads sometimes it would like as, as devlin was just saying that it kind of minimized the grandeur of some of the musical numbers so it, maybe george roy hill was limited in the sense that um i'm thinking of just millie in the office 
Yeah, that's the song I was thinking of as well, where she's she's just having to pantomime around the place about how sad she is. What has he got to work with? Uh... That's yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's a long song as well, and it's it's yeah, carrying yeah. um it's carrying character development and plot development, and he's got a a an actress in a small space in a box of a desk. Yeah, yeah. And that you know that that was my experience constantly. Every time we went to these big sequences. Or what would you know? I would have assumed would be the wig. This is going to move into like, as you say, pure spectacle. It just felt really limited on in the frame, and 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 there's only so much you can you know, as you say, move about in in a single space before you you know you start to peek behind the curtain and go, "There's nothing here, is there?" You, you're literally just going to go from left to right to front to center and. Like you say, Matt, what did he have to, to go with? And, and maybe this plays far, far better on the actual stage. But I, I wrote down on my notes, Patrick, you know, that just it didn't feel cinematic, which I think is kind of a crime for a supposed golden age musical. Like I say, you Seven Brides, Darby O'Gill as well. Like Darby O'Gill had some sequences, you know, for all the for for the madness of the horse riding round for ten minutes. It was lush and grand. I mean, it did go on for ages, but I was like, yeah, I understand that this would be, you know, get you in raptures if you're, if you're properly in. But the, the, the movie's kind of keeping me at arm's length. And then it also wants to be dead racist as well. So, like, <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, Patrick, um, did you ever, uh, you said you like, you were like the, the tapioca dance sequence, mm. the, the friendship dance. Um, would that be like your favorite of the uh of the musical numbers or was yes. there another that kind of caught on with you no that's my favorite uh, yeah i like the benigni brothers bit with um with muzzy and the tapioca one that's my fondest memory of, of watching it when i was younger uh just the 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 song always stuck in my head uh tap 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 and i just I think that really got me into, and it did again this week, got me into the silliness of the film and the silliness of Jimmy. Um, cause I quite like silly, you know, that shortly after they go driving around town. I love driving on the wrong side of the road and I, I quite like Jimmy. It's still quite charming at that point. I, I think there's, there's, there's something going for it. I really like the point. POV shot of the car, the, you know, the naked gunshot, yeah. the car yeah. going through the street <laughs> and those exteriors, you said cinematic, Gally. The exteriors for me still are cinematic. And I, I find them really quite lovely depth and authenticity, and they look really great. Give me a name. What for? Our new dance. Gosh, I never named a dance before or anything. Oh, what do you have for dinner? Franks. Franks? Mm. Franks, 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 Franks. Oh, what else? Sauerkraut. Sauerkraut? Sauerkraut. No. What else? Well, we had tapioca for pudding. Tapioca? Join me in the tapioca. And. What about uh, Grandma Waggett? What's her favourite part of the movie? The building hanging off the flagpole and the, that comedy element there. I couldn't really comment at the moment on a musical number that she liked or anything in it because, but, but when we were younger, the tapioca certainly, and then the comedy of the, the hanging off the building. Cause again, it's silly and that, that's, hmm. I like the silliness of this film in 
most part. I think in most part, it all kind of works for me. And then you have this 20% of bizarre subplotting and characters that don't work and inconsistent that don't work for me. I think in isolation, the, the, the building stuff would have probably worked for me in a different movie. But because mm-hmm. yeah. this film never felt like it was ever going to go there, it really, I think I said quarters. That was the quarter where I was like, I have no idea what this film is now. We're now bouncing up and down on poles, climbing buildings. And I was, I was, I, if, that threw me, if I'm honest with you. That felt like an afterthought of a sequence. Was one of the problems that it's spoofing something that we don't know too much about? Like, if think about the, na- the naked, the naked film. It was a film or... of the time and the police comedy worked at the time. And the, and the producer hunter for Universal, these kind of films drew, look, the, the film made money. And people did want to watch this at the time. And, and I think they knew their audience for that comedy then. Yes, the humor can be distasteful in the film, but I think the, we are of a different audience now. If, if I don't understand what you're lampooning, then the humor is always going to be a stretch for me. Yeah, to, of course. To, to get there. But the, the Matt Ridley test of, uh, would a modern audience now like this film? This is what we've opened up here and exactly what you just said. If we, we don't, I don't understand the holy, I'll never, I won't laugh at Oriental 1 and Oriental 2. And I won't, and it, it can, something like that can really take you out of a film. And then you'll be against it and you'll start to not be, want to, like Galley, want to be on board with what it's trying to do and its humour. And I think that's the product that we're looking at. Like a stand-up comedian, if if you feel like you're in good hands, mm-hmm. you can go with it. If you feel like there, there's any kind of intent that you're not too sure who this guy is or what his intentions are, then you're less likely to go with some of the laughs. Yeah. So I, I felt like that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, sure. I think, I think the form as well. Um, I've been spoiled by, and again, my musical, my musicals knowledge is, is really limited, but I do love Baz Luhrmann and I feel like having seen all of his movies, um, and all of his musicals to then watch this just feels like that's the leap to go back it was hard for me if you think about the iconic images of musicals i I don't know too much but i just know what's in pop culture so i think of singing in the rain swinging around a lamppost in the in the rain i think of julie andrews on a on a hill um with with the camera kind of uh, in you know a helicopter shot going around her um west side story i think of the guys clicking their uh, fingers and doing the, the, the standoff. I didn't see anything in this that leapt off the screen in that, at that kind of level. Yeah. Nothing iconic was it, it. Or you could think, would no, be I wanted iconic. something. Mm. Yeah. I can understand, yeah. um, the way that Julie Andrews performance and also, uh, James Fox's performances, Patrick, when you were saying that you really, uh, clicked with the tapioca when you mm, were young, yeah. I can see that level of creativity mm. clicking with mm-hmm. a young audience and I can, I, it wasn't my upbringing at all, but I can also understand that if you were brought up with, uh, with like Mary Poppins and, and, and Chitty Chitty Bang, Mary, Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang, yeah. Bang, there's a, um, there is a sweetness that's really going to resonate. You could probably show that to kids. You could probably show all of these films to, 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 to young kids these days. And I think that there's something probably quite timeless about the way that it all speak to audiences, possibly because they put so much effort and work into these things. But what was, weird about this one was that julie andrews had carried that level of like literally pantomime performance into a film which probably should have been aimed at an older audience because of the because of the plot the plot being about um 
uh, gender dynamics at a certain point in American history and also about kidnapping. Um, the, it probably called for something a little slyer and she played it so straight and so broad that maybe it meant that some of the, 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 the comedy, I feel like Mary Tyler Moore maybe got it a bit more. I think she got the tone a bit better. One thing there is that Millie's supposed to be 19. Right. And the night, the naivety of the character, I think is why it probably works. I can imagine a younger a woman playing it on, on Broadway or whatever. Right. And, and that naivety will, will come across. And like, like we said earlier, not really understanding her motivations as a character. If you make her younger and more vulnerable, and and Julie Andrews, I don't know how old she was when she early early thirties, I think. Right. Yeah, but you you lose that element, mm. I think, of, of of naivety. Also, it reminded me of when we talked about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis basically playing herself in um, Halloween. 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 There's, there's a lot of Julie Andrews it's, in this film. Like, yeah, it felt like she was walking around her own kitchen in that movie, just being her. And in this movie, I felt like I was watching Julie Andrews um, a lot of the time, and that that maybe put a bit of a, a divider. Do you like Miss Dorothy? Uh, I did. I thought that um, there was a a kind of I. You know, it's weird. It's obviously Mary Tyler Moore is a name that everyone knows mainly from the Weezer song. Oh, yeah. I know that she had a long and very distinguished career in American comedy. She had a long running, very influential sitcom. Uh, genuinely, I knew she was in the cast and I had to look it up so, like several minutes into the film. I had to look it up. It's just like, which one is she? I did not, I had no idea what she looked like. Literally no visual mm. reference for Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, she, and I, she I did very like, similar to the, um, the actress that, plays alongside bruce in color of night a little bit there's a couple of shots where i was <laughs> like march. could be jane marsh yeah um but i did i thought she was quite sweet in it and uh, like i said her interactions with the with the character of of graydon were my favorite stuff <laughs> in the film i thought that um you know that kind of that harks back that stuff doesn't it yeah properly? i feel like she got the the sort of the sly pastiche tone of it a little better and that she kind of understood that it was all a bit of a lark. I do like her introduction, trying to pay for a 35 cent taxi with a checkbook. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it yeah. sets up her character. And again, there's a, there's more setup there that, you know, that she is actually a wealthy woman and that there is, um, that kind of misidentity in this, that misdirection of identity in this where they're mm. hiding themselves from Millie. And then the cross-dressing bit, and Mrs. Mears is the front for the kidnapping and all of that. Come on, miss, you can get it from your desk clerk. But I don't live here, as yet. Oh, look, a pen. Look, lady, I got seven kids and one in the oven. I can't take a check. The date? I'm telling you, I can't take no check. <gasps> no check? But it's from the Gotham National Bank. I don't give a hoot. Could I help? You got 35 cents? Cash? American? Yes, I think so. Thank you, miss. Yes, I do. Here. 10, 20, 35. You did say 35? Yeah. Yeah. Ain't every day you meet a Vanderbilt. And a Rockefeller. Did anyone catch the ca- the taxi driver from Total Recall? I believe he's like, I've got five kids to feed. I can't ta- take a check. <laughs> Another Rockefeller girl. Should we um, should we take a trip to Critics Corner, Matthew? Yeah, uh, Roger Ebert uh, gave this four stars. Did- 
I couldn't um, find his review. Did wow. he really? Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't find it either, but I did find a quote where he was asked, did you ever change your mind about a movie? Wow. And he said, I'm, I'm no longer absolutely certain that thoroughly modern Millie deserved four stars. <laughs> wow. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's as deep as I could go. There is a book available called Roger Ebert's Four Star Reviews, 1967 to 2007. Oh, wow. This is a young Ebert. This is like, uh, uh, this is the year before I, I'm going to crowbar his name in again. This is the year before Russ Meyer's Vixen came out, which was the film that made Russ, uh, uh Roger Ebert, a, a huge diehard Russ Meyer fan. So he was, he'd been what, like 23 no here, 22, 23. He's very cheeky in the interview. Um, it's, it's quite a good read. Oh. Uh, Variety said that it had beguiling satirical recalls mm. of the flapper age. Which again was a sentence I didn't really understand, but it sounds positive. <laughs> I didn't know what a flapper was till I watched this film. No, no. Can you tell us? Cause I'm still not sure. It's with the fringe dresses and the short. It's basically her whole gig here, right? It's, it's, uh, I've never heard the term. Okay. Before. It's, I've, I have. And it's, it's a fashionable it's, young woman, uh, who's intent on enjoying herself and flouting conventional standards of behavior in the 1920s. It was a right, subculture with, yeah, lots of jazz, lots and of... again, a lot of Julie Andrews in the performance and her because that's, that was her kind of sensibility yeah. in life. Anyway. Da- Danielle knew about it as soon mm. as I told her about the plot. She was like, oh, it's a flap house. Yeah, I've heard of that. And I was like, how have a you heard of that? A flap house? Yeah, uh, it's in the, the hotel. So oh, wow. Okay. Right, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I saw found two old reviews that described it as a, like a gay, uh, comedy that was enjoyable it seemed like to charm audiences at the time yeah uh carol uh, channing is a um a kind of a gay icon okay too right i guess i saw like on on letterboxd in particular a lot of the gay community seemed to appreciate that she was in it and they mm. loved the raspberry yeah, stuff yeah. i mean i i didn't mind one raspberry but once once we got several raspberries there was you know <laughs> i was just there was struggling, there was, some, struggling, uh, but, there was yeah. some baffling turns of phrase throughout, which I feel like I'd, yeah. I didn't know where it was coming. I didn't know if it was, again, I didn't know if it was parodic. I didn't know if it was a, a, a writer having some fun with the, the idea of this, this era making up all these new phrases. And it's like, oh, well, I'll just make up a bunch of bullshit as well, which could be quite, cu- quite cute, I guess. I wish I'd written more down, but I've just found one. Uh, I think this, I've written it under the heading of the humor, which I was trying to get across that I couldn't quite understand. I know she's lived this weekend, but it won't show through all those calls. Okay. Oh, I think, I think it said, I think it said curls. It, I think it's curls. Yeah. Because she then goes on to say, no one can see you. You need to cut your hair. Yeah. There was, there was a whole theme about like, you know, the, the right. curly hair being, I guess the, the previous, uh, or, or like the kind of, you know, the, the, the pretty girls look. And all the cool kids were cutting their hair short. That's an example of like, I'm not clued in enough in, in order to get the gag. Uh, so it, it didn't, it just didn't play for me that, uh, and I wish I'd writ- written more down. I got a few of them that were in really quick succession when, uh, uh, Jimmy first turns up at the friendship dance. She was saying, uh, somebody yelled the word pinching. Uh, yeah, to pinch, ter- ter- pinch the bottom. There was a uh, delish. And then, uh, and then there was an exchange which was, uh, he's fresh as paint. Oh, he's just full of applesauce. <laughs> I, like, I, didn't, I guess I, th- I thought maybe, you know how every subculture has a, a slang and then, you know, outside of the people who are in the subculture, they tend to make fun of the, 
the lingo for the in crowd. I didn't know if yeah, they were. Of course, were just dude. Used... That, yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> that is sick. <laughs> um, I, I, so I thought maybe they were, you know, making fun of the, the, the tendency for the, the jazz age cool kids to make mm. up a bunch of stuff. Mm. Like how, you know, teen movies would make fun of it these days. And I didn't know if yeah. maybe that was, that was something mm. to it. But again, you're at two levels of remove now. You're talking about uh, a film set a hundred years ago that was made 50 years ago. So I think we're kind of, uh, Oh, I got one. You're going to have the best picnic you've ever put to your bee stung lips, mm. which again, I think is, is supposed to, I mean, I don't know what you is want that, me to do. Is that, that London that, rhyming but... slang for tits? <laughs> no, bee stung lips are full lips. Yeah. All right. Okay. Full I plump think, lips. Okay. I, but again, I don't have to get, you know, some kind of book out to 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 figure out why that's funny you know you don't watch a guy Ritchie film and question the language in there but just because he's doing these guy Ritchie isms you know and he says random things i'm just trying to defend it i think maybe i was looking maybe i was looking for the humor and and i i want i wanted some, some of the lines are delivered as as punchlines and i i they didn't quite but again if you're not on board me, but... then you're not going to be yeah, really like, yeah. to i don't know have fun yeah. with the the language. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm gonna have to go and get some bubble and squeak. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna stop doing this. I know neither do I. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stop doing this. Um, Devlin put a penny in me, so now I'm just trying to find any any language that, with the subcultural <laughs> reference I can do. What's your favourite scene, Gally? Oh, I think we'd already. Um, can, can we? Can I change it to like least favorite and do it working downwards? Okay. That's- do you have at least a little bit of car wax for the bumper or anything? Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I've, I've already said it, but I'll reiterate it because literally, you know, the cat w- that got the cream when that woman flew into the stage on the wires. <laughs> so that was, that was, uh, but honestly, like I, this is, this is not meaning to sound <laughs> like a, a shit sandwich, but, um, I really, yeah, I really, did not get on board with it at all. And I think, I think we've identified though through certainly Matt and Devlin and myself, you know, we all had similar issues, but for different reasons. But I think Matt nailed it on the head as well, which is even if you'd removed the completely racist subplot that really did kind of hurt my viewing, um, I just think the separation and the lack of knowledge of what they're referencing meant that I felt like I was out, out of the, you know, I was out of the joke, couldn't get into it. Um, it was the outsider looking in, but, but in the end, as I say, the thing that I was hoping for was, I don't know why, but I've walked into my summary. The thing I was hoping for was that the sequences would be so dazzling and, um, and creative, like in seven brides and the music would be, um, catchy enough for me to start singing that I would get into it, but it, it didn't happen on this, on this occasion. Um, hopefully the last, uh, for this, <laughs> this one. Yeah. Anyway, that's my summary. What about you, Matt? Final thoughts. And do you recommend thoroughly modern Millie? I, I wish that had some opium. <laughs> <laughs> post, uh, post raspberries sequence, uh, post jazz baby, I should say. Uh, it was like, uh, like a hallucinogenic drug experience, like, did you ever hear the quote that if a lion could speak English, we still wouldn't be able to communicate with it because its frames of reference would be so vastly different to ours? It would just, <laughs> it would just come out as nonsense. It kind of felt like that. Like ev- every shot was like a foreign word that I didn't understand. And every scene was like grammar in another language. So, uh, I couldn't 
follow the necessary beats in order to enjoy the story. I think you, to enjoy it, you do have to discount the racist subplot if you can do that, if you can get that out of the way. Um, uh, and then you have to eliminate the depiction of women and, uh, you know, put that to the sort of the, the broadest reaches, uh, which, which are both difficult to do. Um, it, but if you have a grasp of, of like the language of the movie musical, uh, I, I think you're more likely to appreciate it. So this was a really hard one to, to kind of critique because I don't have the skills and the references to, to talk about it really. Um, if I knew more about movie musicals, I think I could, I could be on more of a level playing field just, with just, it. Just say it like, um, you, know, cause you, you know, film just, it's, it's good to look at it just as a film. Yeah. Well, that, that's perhaps where it, it fell down a bit. Um, I think, um, yeah, I'm not a great judge of this material. I know nothing about the twenties. I know nothing about jazz. Um, but you know, it, it was a strange introduction to these kinds of films because I wasn't raised on them, but I, I kept thinking of, of how it came to you, Patrick. And I have films in my life that came to me via people in in my family and and that are very meaningful to me and i know they're not great films necessarily but um i i appreciate them on on that level so i just i kept trying to see it that way uh it is too long um everyone talks about the jewish wedding sequence and that was just as random <laughs> as it's any of the others to me I, it's like oh that one needs to be removed it's like well i wouldn't <laughs> necessarily pinpoint that as the, the the jigsaw piece that can come out um I thought it meandered. Uh, the musical sequences didn't further the plot. There probably should be slightly more tied, tied to the story and the character. Uh, in spite of quite a dark plot as it unravels, I didn't feel the jeopardy. Um, I, I didn't really know why Millie was aspiring to the things that she was. Um, it's just a film I didn't really understand, but I'm, I'm, I, it was an interesting one to, to have to, to go through because I never would have seen this film. I never would have sought it out. And, and it's added a, an, an, another layer to, to my knowledge of, uh, strings to bent so, bows. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't feel qualified to recommend it, but, but all, all I can say, it just wasn't quite for me. Um, but if you've searched for this title and our podcast has popped up, then there's, there's a, there's a, a a big chance that you might be into it. Um, so yeah, thank you for picking it. Um, and I'm glad that I made it through the Patrick <laughs> camp because I missed the other two, uh, musicals you picked. So I, I feel like I've earned some kind of a stripe, but yeah. Um, how about Devlin? I, I pretty much agree with, with what you said there. I, I liked the way you phrased it about the, uh, the idea of it being kind of a bit of a foreign language that you couldn't quite decode. There's a, I'm not particularly attracted to wackiness, which which is a problem it's a fundamental stumbling block and the thing is like it's like silliness and nonsense i'm into i mean i'm you know i am as is matt from the same neck of the woods as vic and bob and they are like my absolute heroes and that is wacky and silly and like completely pointless but there's a um i think it's the it's it's the broad slapsticky pantomime performance style that that i struggle with and i think when i come across it because I didn't have it 
in my formative years. I can't get on board with it now because I've never attached anything to it. So experiencing it way, way, way after the point at which you probably should have means that I, I don't really, I don't gravitate towards it. And when I'm confronted with it, I sort of recoil a little. So it wasn't probably the kind of film that I was going to be able to judge. I found it interesting as a transitional time period piece. Mm-hmm. This, um, film on the cusp and i think all of the issues we've had with it probably come out of this of this discussion which is that the the medium had started to move on and there are it's not the fact that the film is old that that really gets me i there are films that are much 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 older that i gravitate towards there are films from the 1950s and, and even the 1940s that i feel are more modern and more um uh, amenable to, to audiences possibly also when it comes to a big big musical like this i don't i don't know what it wants from me because <laughs> and that's a problem because i'm not getting stuff um i don't really tend to i don't relax into musical numbers and thus i end up spending a long time just kind of waiting for something else to happen uh, there are, there are aspects of it that I liked and possibly this, uh, this is something that maybe, um, the, the way that I feel like Mary Tyler Moore kind of locked onto this, uh, uh, the humor of the, the piece a little better than the most of the other characters. I thought maybe, maybe that's something I've taken from it that maybe, you know, her old TV show is something that I should look into because I think mm. that there's, there's some real charm there. And, um, but. As a, as an overall film experience, I I'm very sorry to say I found it long. Um, I found it long and quite hard to to get through. Ooh. Oh, said the actress to the bishop. And <laughs> <laughs> so I I did struggle with the film. You know what is what is weird though? Um, uh, I'm nostalgic for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and I'm even more nostalgic for um, uh, Darby O'Gill. In retrospect, I understand those films a lot better than I understand this one. I understand what they were for. I'm not quite sure what this one was for, yeah. and that's not my place to determine. And I I know it must have its fans, and I don't want to brag on them because you know people will enjoy things and that is great it's i i feel like to to be too harsh on this film would be to pull off the road oh. and kick a cat that i've just seen and it's like <laughs> well it's not the cat wasn't doing anything i would never have encountered it so i would never have encountered this film if it weren't put in front of me so unfortunately yeah. i have to say that i really did not enjoy it as a film it was not a fun it was not a fun two days for me but i feel a bit mean in saying that because it's like it's a drive-by slapping um before i summarize myself devlin i did warn you so if this is number three which do you prefer of darby o'gill and uh seven brides oh my my one two three goes uh darby o'gill because it was mad okay it was darby o'gill is mental yeah as a retrospective thing of like sticking lots of stuff sticks in my head and it it saved itself in the end by being just very 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 strange it kind of fucked up and dark and i I quite appreciate that and uh second on that would be seven brides for seven brothers it rescued itself with some very impressive dancing sequences and some very nice matte paintings and sometimes it's nice to just be able to look at a map painting in a film you're not enjoying. So I, I, I will reverse. So it's Seven Brides, Darby O'Gill, right. and then uh, Modern Millie doesn't even, unfortunately, chart. Um, it's not, not for me. And what I will say, Pat, before I, um, before I sort of uh, let you, you summarise your bit, is um, the one thing that we do 
and I was being a little bit facetious earlier, the one thing that we do always want to do on the show is not just for us, but also for our listeners is you want to challenge the status quo. So if you like a certain type of movie, then of course you gravitate towards it and you just end up kind of circle jerking the same films. You end up watching the same movie and then lo and behold, you know, you end up, uh, you know, you end up just kind of having your opinions never challenged. So it's always positive to, to have like your film, kind of knowledge challenge like i'd never like matt said and devlin said i'd never have sought this out but the fact that i've now watched it means that i can at least have a dog in the fight if i'm ever in a pub and someone's like thinking about watching thoroughly modern Min- <laughs> millie i could turn around at least and say i've seen it i'll let me just give you a little breakdown disclaimer <laughs> it might be racist <laughs> so you know but but genuinely um, it is always good to just kind of get out of your, your lane sometimes. So yeah, I do want to say thank you for that mm-hmm. just because it wasn't for us, but I totally agree with Devlin. Like I have a, a greater appreciation now for, for Darby O'Gill and seven, seven brothers. And I know now why I preferred them and why I really disliked this because I have a point of reference. I could have easily picked Santa Music or Mary Poppins easily because, um, they are extraordinary films for me and real seminal of my youth. And I was, they were the ones on hard repeat for me in, in that environment with grandma um, and even mum and dad, we'd watch it. But Thoroughly Modern Millie was just a memory I had and I wanted to revisit it because it has been the longest time uh, for a Julie Andrews film for me. And she was a hero of mine growing up and she still is really. Um, I, I have blinkers on, uh, in this film anyway. Gally, you said, like, you know, to go back and be, I'm, I'm biased and this is something I grew up with. And Julie Andrews, I, my, my, my head says that she's just over the top and Julie Andrews in this film, my heart just said she's wonderful. And I really like watching her because that's a screen presence that I, I really enjoy. The film, um, I will say that it's not the film I remembered. It feels longer than I remembered and there's things that don't impress me now as much as I remember being impressed when I was younger. I still really like the tapioca song and dance. I possibly can't fully appreciate or explain why, but I find it very charming and I, I smile throughout it. The, and the film has all the problems we've discussed today. Um, I just see enough in it that now I could say I really wish he got his edit and I wish we saw a slimmer version of this film, a director's cut. There's things in there, the camera move and, and bits that I do like from the direction. And I find the kind of story quite, again, I'm using the word charming and enough to get on that I enjoy despite um, being quite bizarre and very uh, inconsistent and unbalanced. But maybe something in the unbalance is what I enjoy. I, I quite like silly and stupid, especially of that era that maybe I don't understand as well, Matt, but I understand that that is the temperament and the language and the, the comedy of the time. And I find myself chuckling along, um, particularly to Muzzy. Uh, you know, I think Carol Channing is very funny in this. Um, I do, I, I love. Trevor Graydon, uh, just standing still with the pipe in his hand, just <laughs> that moronic grin in his head. So 
the familiarity to the film and the uh how I latched onto it when I was younger and appreciated that that kind of reminiscence is what drives me through it now. Um I can recognise that you know, in in the echelons of Julie Andrews films or musicals at the time, it's down the list. It's third on my list of Seven Brides and Darby O'Gill, same order as yours, Gally. Um but I'm really glad and thank you for watching it with me again because it was really nice to revisit it. Next time, I think I'll pick um, a Doris Day for you uh, of that time. And I think I said that Julie Andrews won uh, Best Actress for Sound and Music. I meant Mary Poppins earlier, just to correct that, if I did make that slip up. Well, so Patrick, it leads me to ask, um, is it sad to be alone on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh, reference, very pulled it good. in. Thank you very much. So tell us, Patrick, I assume, or Matt, uh, where, if our listeners dare... Um, disclaimer though, genuinely listeners, um, for some, I mean, I think it will actually be so offensive that they'll not get through it, but, um, where can they find thoroughly modern Millie? I don't think you can watch it anywhere. <laughs> Brilliant. No. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's an eBay DVD. Uh, I found a copy lying around the internet. Yeah. U- Universal released, um, DVD around the time the musical went onto the stage in the early part of this century. Um, which I have a copy of that DVD. You can get it like most things, DVDs. You can get quite cheap on eBay or, uh, what's the Magpie website? Um, Music and, Magpie. Yeah, thank you. And then they released a Blu-ray, the first Blu-ray version of this film in September last year. Um, which apparently does like has transferred really well from what I read from one review, which is quite nice to hear. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to buy the Blu-ray. Uh, but usually I do see it in the radio times at Christmas on one of the channels d- during the, doing the rounds. And uh, I think, I don't think it was on the Christmas just gone because I took the DVD up, but I think the Christmas before I might have seen it just to say that as well. But yes, uh, 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 physical media is very, very, very easy to find. Shouldn't have an issue. Excellent. Excellent. Which brings us on to the next episode, Galley, and I think it's your pick. It is, it is, and I've decided because Tis the season. It's football season. And we haven't <gasps> done a, we haven't done a sports movie for a while. So I was to and thrown between going into some terribly depressing David Fincher or doing this. And we're going to do this. We're going to be talking about the very weird Peter Berg because we're going to be doing Friday Night Lights. Oh, in- excellent. Oh. Well, I'm figured by the time the episode is recorded and released, the NFL season would have been over and I will be needing my fix, as will all the other football stands out there. So why not visit what I think is one of the greatest American football? Why are you calling um, it football? (laughs) Football. So ready for some football? Ready for it. He can pass. And he can pass. (laughs) So yes, we're going to be doing that next. So for those of you who are very diligent, um, go out and get Friday Night Lights. It'll not probably get recorded for another six months now looking at our schedule, but we will try our best. As I say, Uh, we'll, we'll look to do it in the off season. Shall we? Devlin, that's, that suits, doesn't it? Post, yeah, in the, the, the post Super Bowl slump, you know. After the Pro Bowl that nobody cares about. Right. Uh, Devlin, I think you should be, you know, we've got new stuff. We've new stock that's arrived. So please, uh, inform our listeners because, you know, we're heavy shillers now. Um, 
about our T-Mail store? Plugs. It's plugs time. We have a website. It's rewindmoviecast.com. There is plenty on there. Uh, there's still all of our essays from previous um, episodes, including Matt's uh, fantastic Arnold Schwarzenegger essay that accompanied yeah, the Predator release. Very good. Very good. And uh, there may be something to accompany this episode. We never like to pledge ahead of time because it can sometimes take a really long time. Uh, if you go to rewindmoviecast.com, you will see a tab that says shop that will take you to our T-Mill store, devlindoesdrawing.tmill.com. There are my usual range of shirts, stupid shirts. And there's also a poster right up there now, which is the Predator poster mm, from last episode. It looks fucking sick. Yeah, excellent. Um, they're all printed to order on uh, sustainably sourced and recycled materials. So you can feel real good about it. And we can get our 62 pence profit. Mmm, rolling yum, in the big Yum, yum. <laughs> I could get two chomps with that. That's amazing. <laughs> if you enjoy what we do, our whole back catalogue, which is starting to become like a catalogue. Like I was looking at it, like we're on 78 episodes. That's pretty damn good. Um, so yeah, if you want to, if you enjoy what we do, please like, subscribe, share it with friends uh, who you think might be into it. And uh, and also, thank you very much for responding to my last plea uh, of putting a rating on Spotify. Please continue to do that if you haven't uh, and you are listening now. Um, but thank you for responding. That's it from uh, from me. So we will say our goodbyes then, shall we, team? <laughs> I like the way you're looking at the camera there, so you're looking at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's my stage. I'm performing. You didn't have a go at Julie for doing it. Mugging hey. at the camera. Good old Julie. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Fire a dart into my neck and shove me in the laundry, please. It's Gally from Glasgow. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> Toss your curls and cares away. It's Devlin in London. Say. Imagine all that sweet softness in your arms, eh? It's Patrick in London. I'm a working girl and a boob. <laughs> it's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Ooh.